once more from 2 Samuel, the 21st chapter. And I've asked Bob Miner if he would pray God's blessing upon the declaration of his truth. I'm going to begin at the beginning of chapter 21. I didn't get to read any of it to you last week, so I'll read this whole section again. I think we all need to get our minds around what's going on before we focus on 7 through 9. And there was a famine in the days of David three years, year after year, and David sought the face of Jehovah. And Jehovah said, it is for Saul and for his bloody house, because he put to death the Gibeonites. And the king called the Gibeonites and said unto them, Now the Gibeonites were not of the children of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. And the children of Israel had sworn unto them, and Saul sought to slay them in his zeal for the children of Israel and Judah. And David said unto the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And wherewith shall I make atonement, that ye may bless the inheritance of Jehovah? And the Gibeonites said unto him, It is no matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house, neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What ye shall say, that will I do for you. And they said unto the king, The man that consumed us and that devised against us that we should be destroyed from remaining in any of the borders of Israel. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us, and we will hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of Jehovah. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, because of Jehovah's oath that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. But the king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bare unto Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Michal, the daughter of Saul, whom she bare to Adrael, the son of Barzillai, the Meholathite. And he delivered them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them in the mountain before Jehovah, and they fell all seven together. And they were put to death in the days of harvest, in the first days at the beginning of barley harvest. Let us pray. Our glorious and merciful Father, we thank you that you have gathered us together this morning in one mind and one body and one heart, Father, to hear your word, to meditate on your word, and have your word planted within us, Father, that it would give us guidance and wisdom in this life. We pray that the words that were preached and are being preached this morning by your servant David would, would bring true to us, Father. We, we hope and pray that they would be dear to our hearts. And again, we ask for your wisdom and your understanding of the things that are being taught to us this morning, Father. We pray these things and give thanks to you in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> One of the men before Sunday school 
showed me a little clipping, very small, it looked like an obituary, that's how small it was. But it was a notice, and I thought he said it was regarding a rabbi, but be that as it may, regarding a teaching session or perhaps a preaching session, perhaps on a Saturday, Saturday school instead of Sunday school. But at any rate, he made reference to the fact that he was teaching from the life of David. And he referenced David as, whose life was like a roller coaster, he said. And I believe that we have seen over a number of years that that is an apt description of the life of David and probably an apt description of the lives of each one of us uh, seeking to please our Lord and seeking to follow God and uh, striving. But nonetheless, we find ourselves because of indwelling sin because of those words that Paul spoke in, in uh, Romans 7, that which I would do, that I do not, that which I would not do, that I do. That's the roller coaster that David was on. That's the roller coaster that each of us are on, struggling. But I appreciate, appreciated that reminder of, of this reality. And I think even this passage that we're looking at today that that I just read. We see the ups and downs of a roller coaster, even in, even in those nine verses, up and down, up and down. David must have been uh, almost uh, beside himself uh, in trying to deal with so many different things, uh, not the least uh, his own guilt because of his sin with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband, Uriah the Hittite. But here, in verses 7 through 9, and we looked at his sparing Mephibosheth last time, but we look at how that he took these seven. We're not told. There's a whole lot that we're not told. We're not told of these men. We don't read of them. I don't believe anywhere else in Scripture. These sons of Saul, some of them evidently grandsons, but descended from King Saul. We're not told personally about any one of them. We're not told what kind of men they were. And yet David numbers these seven and delivers them to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites hang them. We're not even certain exactly what that means, that they hanged them, whether they slew them and then hung their bodies up, even as the bodies of Saul and his son Jonathan were hanged up by the Philistines. We're not sure if they were hanged by the neck until they were dead. We don't really know, but they were hanged up. We do know that the Gibeonites said they would hang them up unto Jehovah in Gibeah of Saul. And that leaves a couple of questions open to us, and I didn't find much help, frankly, from commentators. They seem to be somewhat divided about whether we should view this instance, this, this turning these seven over uh, to the Gibeonites and they're, they're slaying them, they're executing them. I believe it's fair to use that term, they executed them. If we're to, if we're to view that as, as a sacrifice of some sort, because we read that it was before Jehovah, or if it, was, it said that it was before Jehovah because Saul had broken a covenant that had been made with the Gibeonites in the name of Jehovah. 
We're just not absolutely certain whether that's what's involved or whether it's just a case of capital punishment. And when I say just a case, I don't mean to minimize capital punishment, but which, which is it? Is it satisfaction? Is it atonement? Is it propitiation that's being required? Was capital punishment necessary? Did these seven have to die? We know, and we read that again in verse 1, the famine that God brought on. David recognized that the famine was brought on by God, and he wanted to know why. Why are we struggling here? Why has there been no rain? And we're experiencing famine because of the absence of rain, the absence of thy blessings from heaven through the clouds of rain that we have experienced in the past. So which is it? What, what is going on here? Is, is, is David being called to give those men over so that they can execute them, as it were, capital punishment? Vicarious substitutes for their father and grandfather Saul for his wickedness? We, don't, we aren't told. We don't know precisely what it is. But we run into, and I ran into, uh, this matter in reading the writings of other men, particularly about capital punishment, it seems that the country and perhaps the world is divided, divided over the issue of capital punishment. And yet we find in the scriptures, and I could add that the world is divided about it too. They seem to be largely against it, and yet they, the people that said that must be forgetting about some of the countries that, that use it freely um, and carelessly, I might add. But we ask, is this, is this a, was there a capital crime? Is this call for capital punishment? We know that God's displeasure was shown because or through the famine. He was showing his displeasure and he was showing his displeasure at the behavior of Saul, and he adds, and for his bloody house. For his bloody house. That seems to cause us, or it does cause us to lean, to lean to the idea that it's uh, execution, that it's, they're paying vicariously for Saul's crime. And yet again, as I've said, it's to be done before Jehovah. And so that seems to lean a little bit toward, if not uh, an offering, nonetheless satisfaction to God's justice. <coughs> what do we read in the scriptures about capital punishment itself? Not a lot of time passes before, if we open our books and begin reading our Bibles, that is, it doesn't take us very long to come to the pronouncement of God's mind in the matter. When we read in Genesis, in chapter 9, speaking to Noah, and we know that, like the crime of murder, Saul had murdered many of the Gibeonites. Gibeonites. He, he might have considered it war or something. Uh, people are like that, are we not? justifying our actions, but it was murder, and he had murdered many. And God told Noah, 
after the flood, when he was framing that covenant with Noah, he gave this mandate, I'm going to call it, I believe it definitely is a mandate in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 9, when he said, Surely your blood, the blood of your lives, will I require. At the hand of every beast will I require it. At the hand of man, even at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God made he man. It doesn't seem to leave a lot of wiggle room for all those that would oppose capital punishment. I don't see any wiggle room at all. But nonetheless, I would say that the laws need to be held up. In other words, the, the fairness and the, and the judgment I think we have in the scriptures a picture of, of what God requires regarding this when he established these cities of refuge so that the manslayer, someone that accidentally or deliberately either one kills another, that they are to flee to this city of refuge. And if they get there without being slain by the avenger of blood, then they can appeal to the high priest in that city of refuge. And they will weigh the case and weigh the information and the witnesses and so on, and they will make a decision on whether this individual should be given refuge in that city of refuge or whether he be turned out the gate where the avenger of blood, usually a close relative of the victim of this murder or this accident, waits to take vengeance upon him. So there was judgment. We need to give judgment. We need to be sure that we are giving proper judgment, that the judgments in our land are not discriminatory in any way, shape, or form. We, we need, in other words, to be sure that the, that the person being tried for murder actually murdered before we pass the sentence of death upon them. I've said this before. Right after we came to South Carolina, right after I began seminary, you know, this, whole, this whole deal with O.J. Simpson was all over the news. And I remember the, the judgment that was passed, the jury's determination that he was innocent. Well, I don't believe he was innocent, and I don't know how many do believe he was innocent, but the point I'm making right now is that with the evidence that they had or the lack thereof, that I wouldn't be able to support the death penalty being applied in that case because it wasn't absolutely proven. There was no confession and so on. But I absolutely believe in the death penalty in the majority of cases where the evidence is clear. I just want to make that point about my view of capital punishment. The historical context of this mandate that God gave to Noah about capital punishment. It was brought to my attention by one writer that this is in the context of just following the flood. This was following the flood, but he uses that phrase when he speaks about it. He uses that phrase that Jehovah was executing by means of that flood he was executing an entire generation. 
This was a prosecution of his inviolable law. And he executed it. He executed that entire generation, save eight souls. Noah and his three sons and the wives with them. That was an execution, was it not? God is jealous for his commandments. He's jealous that his people, that all people would live unto him, that they would obey him. And he judged them and he executed them. We find capital punishment, I believe, in the scriptures to be proper if done properly. I don't think that that's a conflict. In Leviticus 17, in Leviticus 17, we have something of an extension of the basis of this. We read in 10 and 11, and whatsoever man there be of the house of Israel or of the strangers that sojourn among them that eateth any manner of blood. The context here is just the importance of the blood. And we're talking in, in Genesis 9 about whoso sheddeth man's blood. I will set my face against that soul that eateth blood and I will cut him off from among his people. And here's the basis and this is the basis for capital punishment as well. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that maketh atonement by reason of the life. And that's why I can't help but, but think that there might be atonement being practiced here, God directing it for the Gibeonites to slay these seven sons of Saul to satisfy God's justice, to satisfy that covenant breach that had been performed. There's a covering available. We read of it in Exodus 25 when, when we're reading of how the, the mercy seat and the, and the Ark of the Covenant was constructed and how that the mercy seat was made to be a covering over the Ark of the Covenant, that mercy seat, that kofer, or kofrat, as it is in the Hebrew, a propitiatory, a covering. And that's what we discover in the scriptures to be the, the protection, the satisfaction, that that uh, separates the people of God from others, that covering over the Ark of the Covenant, that covering over the law, that mercy seat with its covering. That mercy seat, how important. We read in this, if we continue in this passage in 2 Samuel, we read at the end of the next paragraph that after this, that God was entreated. Whatever they did, it satisfied God's wish in the matter. It's satisfied, I'm going to suggest, his justice. It satisfied or turned back his wrath. That's what a covering does in one respect. It turns back God's wrath. In bringing this famine, in, in taking away rain, we read that after that, after this execution, 
We read in verse 14 that God was entreated for the land. Through this, by this, he was entreated. And we read in the 10th verse, we read that water was poured upon them from heaven in the second part of that 10th verse. So we read that after the execution, after them being hanged up before Jehovah, that God granted rain. He granted deliverance from that drought. He granted deliverance from that famine that had been in the land for three years. That mercy seat, all important. That covering over the mercy seat, all important. I do believe that it's fair to suggest that whether you call it atonement or expiation or satisfaction or appeasement or reconciliation, I believe that in a sense it's all of these. God was propitiated by the response of David in satisfying the requirement given him by the Gibeonites. God was satisfied and granted rain. He was entreated for the land. And whether it be somewhat of a sacrifice or whether it be an instance of capital punishment, nonetheless, we find capital punishment in the scriptures on numerous occasions. I couldn't help but be thinking about early in 1 Samuel. And this was what brought the downfall of Saul, if you remember, how that he refused to follow the directive, the commandment of God given him by Samuel that he was to destroy all of the Amalekites. He was to destroy them. He was to destroy all their, all their flocks, all their herds. He was to save nothing alive. And on top of that, he pretended to take the office of the priest Samuel showed up a little late, and that was Saul's excuse, so he thought. Samuel says, what are you doing here? What have you been doing? And he says, I've been doing what you commanded. I've been doing God's will. And Samuel says, what is that bleeding that I hear in my ears? In other words, you didn't kill the sheep. And then Agag, the king, that should have been put to death as well as the rest of the Amalekites, he comes up. What was the judgment that this judge, Samuel, pronounced to God upon Agag? It's a bloody picture that we read in 1 Samuel 15:33. It says that Samuel took a sword and hewed or hacked Agag to pieces. An example of capital punishment executed for just cause upon this that had murdered. And he said, you've left homeless and, and fatherless many. Many widows because of the murders you've committed. Samuel said to Agag. We see the two thieves in Luke in chapter 23. You remember those thieves, one on either side of Christ at Golgotha. You remember their words. You remember how they were told in Matthew and were told in Mark that they were railing along with those gathered around. 
the cross. They were railing at Christ. And even one of these malefactors, we read, one of the malefactors that were hanged railed on him, saying, Art not thou the Christ? Save thyself and us. Does that sound like he's giving any honor to Christ? Does that sound like that he sees him as the Son of God? Or even that he sees him as a good and perfect and innocent man? No, he's railing just like the rest of the people around the cross, railing at him. There's no sign at all of any kind of contrition, any kind of repentance, whatever. It was like we were hearing in Sunday school. He just wants things done for him. If you are the Christ, then save us. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Dost thou not even fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? They're being hanged. They're being crucified. They're being put to death. They're being executed. An instance of capital punishment. And this second of these thieves says, And we indeed justly pronouncing in the inspired scriptures that this execution was just. Another argument for the justice of capital punishment. He went on saying, for we receive the due rewards of our deeds. Execution, death is a due reward. But this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said, Jesus, remember me when thou comest in thy kingdom. And he said unto him, verily, I say unto thee, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Another instance of validation of capital punishment by Paul in Acts 25, when he was before those that were charging him. I believe it was Festus, and he, he said, if I'm guilty of any of these things that are worthy of death, I refuse not to die. In other words, I, I understand and I accept capital punishment as a means but I haven't done any of these things. Another instance of scripture supporting <coughs> capital punishment. But here we have, in the case of our Lord Jesus Christ, what some might refer to as the ultimate sacrifice. He made the, don't you get a little tired of hearing about all these people that made the ultimate sacrifice? I realized that they gave, they gave an awful lot. They gave their lives. But what I'm opposing or suggesting we don't know is their motive. We don't know if they were actually sacrificing. My wife had a school friend that was killed in Vietnam, blown to pieces. I don't think he went over there designing to sacrifice himself like that is all I'm getting at. But our Lord Jesus Christ did design his death for his people. He did make the ultimate sacrifice. And we read in the scriptures that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. We read that in the scriptures and it, and it reminds us, does it not, of, of Genesis 9. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed. There must be a shedding of blood to pay for the shedding of blood. And Christ had to shed his blood to save his people. Because we are guilty, his people, as his people, we are guilty of murder, yes, in our hearts, if not physically. We have committed every crime in the books. 
broken every law of God, violated his commands. And some of us for years before God in his grace arrested us, convicted us, convinced us through God the Holy Spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. Peter speaks of Christ and his crucifixion is hanging on a tree, the him they hanged on a tree in Acts in a couple of different places that he was hanged on a tree, even, even like these sons of Saul, one of the methods of execution. But I bring that up because of the scriptures in Deuteronomy telling us, and Paul repeats it, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. And when Paul speaks of it in Galatians, he says, this was done that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith in Jesus Christ. But Christ was innocent as the thief intimated clearly. He was innocent. But without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. Without the shedding of blood, our sins would not be remitted. Do you understand that? If it weren't for capital punishment, our sins would not be remitted. Is that a fair statement? Mm -hmm. That in and of itself doesn't justify capital punishment, but that's the way God designed. That's the way Christ designed. Even as he set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem, knowing what awaited him, making use of capital punishment in order to redeem his people. We read, of course, in Isaiah that God laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He laid that on him. Our sins, our iniquities were upon him. And he became a curse for us. A couple of writers suggested that that might have been a, a brief moment than when the curse was actually laid upon him. That time that caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? God forsook him for some moment there because he had become a curse. Because God made him a curse, laying our iniquities upon him. And there were many, there are many places in that chapter, Isaiah 53, where we see these things repeated again and again that all amount to our sins, our iniquities being laid on him that imputation of our sin to him. Isaiah says he's born, born, carried our griefs, our sorrows he bore. All these things were laid upon him. And we did esteem him stricken and smitten of God. He was wounded for what? For our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Because he was executed, we are healed. Because Jesus Christ poured out his blood before Jehovah. 
We are healed. We have salvation. All we like sheep have gone astray, Isaiah continues. We have turned everyone to his own way and have already suggested every law that we could see set before us, we broke. And even as James says, if you break one law, you've broken them all. We are guilty, helpless sinners deserving of death, spiritual death, physical death, eternal death. Christ died at Golgotha, poured out his blood, poured out his soul, we could say. He laid down his life for his people. He was indeed the innocent victim, the only one in whom was found no sin. No sin. Emmanuel, God with us, perfect man, perfect God, perfect God-man. These of the house of Saul that we've been discovering here in this passage, they were not very likely innocent victims, as I've already mentioned. As I've already mentioned, God himself refers to this slaughter of Gibeonites as being done by Saul and his bloody house. It intimates at least that all of these descendants were guilty of that butchery that has brought about this famine and this drought to bring the famine. This is the reason that God referred, I believe, not only to Saul, but to his bloody house, because they were almost certainly complicit in that murder, in that slaughter. They had blood on their hands, almost certainly and deserved death. They deserved to be hanged up before Jehovah. All seven of them. All seven. Someone suggested the possibility. It struck me that speaking of the seven, that this is the same that we read of in the scriptures about the golden plate of propitiation on which the high priest sprinkled blood seven times. That might be an argument for this being a sacrifice. But it's Christ Jesus himself is the only acceptable sacrifice. The only acceptable one. But perhaps this was nonetheless the basis of seven being chosen. I don't believe that the Gibeonites, yes, they did. They said, let seven men. But they've been dwelling amidst the Israelites for generations already. So it's still possible that they had that in their mind. Nevertheless, seven were chosen and seven were hanged. Seven were executed. Seven were put to death. They had blood on their hands and deserved death. Christ Jesus, innocent victim, but he was one that laid down his own life for his people. The writer or the preacher of the word to the Hebrews in Hebrews 2, 17, we are informed in 2, 17, wherefore it behooved him in all things, speaking of Christ, to be made like unto his brethren, that he might become a merciful and faithful 
high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. It behooved him. You remember Psalm 40, Lo, I come in the volume of the book. It is written in, thy, in the roll of the book. Lo, I come to do thy will, O oh my God. Thy law is within my heart, he said. The commandments, the directions, the Trinitarian Council had determined upon this, the way of salvation, and he did not turn his face away from it. He did not turn it at all, but set his face steadfastly toward Jerusalem. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. In, in John, the Gospel of John, in the 20th chapter, I'm sure we've all read it a number of times. In John 20, at verse 11, but Mary was standing without at the tomb, weeping at the tomb of Christ, of course. So as she wept, she stooped and looked into the tomb. And she beholdeth two angels in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet where the body of Jesus had lain. I've never given that any thought, I freely confess. Why? Why an angel at the head and an angel at the feet? One writer has suggested that it was in reference to what we read in Exodus 25 about the mercy seat. You remember how that they constructed on the covering over the mercy seat the two cherubim, one on each end facing one another. And this writer suggests, <clears throat> and it seems at least feasible, that what we have here is two angels sitting one at the head and one at the feet where Jesus had lain, where the body of Jesus had lain, which would intimate if it's, if it's so. And I don't see any good argument against it, as I never understood why, one at the head and one at the foot. But it suggests powerfully it is because Christ Jesus is our mercy seat. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we thank Thee for Christ, our mercy seat. We thank Thee that Thou hast made us willing to come unto Thee through Him, through the blood of the Lamb of God. Our Father, as we come to the table now, we pray that we would in particular remember the love of our Lord Jesus Christ. Even while we were yet sinners, He died for us. May we communicate in that mystery with Him at the table now. We pray by thy grace and for thy glory through Jesus Christ. Amen.